Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center for Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. My normal partner in this enterprise, Elliot Cohen, is traveling in Europe. So once again, I'm flying solo, but I have a very special guest uh, and a, a former colleague and friend, uh, Ambassador Stephen Pfeiffer. Uh, ambassador Pfeiffer was ambassador to Ukraine, but has had a long and distinguished foreign service career. He was an advisor to the U.S. INF delegation, an advisor to the late Paul Nitze, who negotiated the INF Treaty. He was senior director for Russia and Ukraine in the NSC in the Clinton administration. He was a deputy assistant secretary of state, and he served in Warsaw and London, as well as Moscow, where he and I were colleagues in the U.S. Embassy political section. Uh, he is also a an author. Um, he is the author of The Eagle and the Trident, U.S.-Ukraine Relations in Turbulent Times, and co-author with Mike O'Hanlon, who we hope to have on to discuss his new book soon, uh, a book on the opportunity about the prospects for, for arms control, the book which I actually even went and blurbed. So, Steve, welcome. It's great to have you. Thanks very much, Eric. So today is VE Day. Uh, tomorrow will be Victory Day in Moscow, and they will have a parade of some sort, although it's not clear how large that parade will be, and a lot of extra steps for security have taken place. Before we get into that, though, as a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, why does all of this matter to Americans? I mean, increasingly you see in some polling that there are concerns about this turning into an endless war. Uh, you see some, particularly on the Republican side, questioning uh, the value of the U.S. assistance to Ukraine. Why should we care about this? That's a good question to ask. I mean, Ukraine's 5,000 miles away. We have to worry about things like the rise of China. But let me give you uh, several reasons why I believe what's going on in this war matters greatly to American interests. Now, first of all, um, going back nearly 70 years, the United States has defined as a vital national interest a stable and secure Europe. There are political, economic, security reasons for that. How this war before Russia and Ukraine turns out is going to have a big impact on the kind of Europe that we face. Should Russia win, it's going to be an unstable and insecure Europe, and that's going to require a lot more American attention in the future. A second rule is, um, again, since the World War II, We've had this idea of the rules-based international order, which I believe has served not only Western interests well, but most countries. I mean, China, under those rules, lifted 600 million people out of poverty. Well, the fundamental or the first rule of that order is you don't use military force to take territory from other countries. That's exactly what Putin is doing in a war that really looks somewhat imperialist. The third reason I think we should be caring is that um, I have to be humble. We don't know how far Vladimir Putin's ambitions extend. Should he prevail in Ukraine, would he go, would his ambitions go beyond that? He's talked in the past about this war against Ukraine as recovering historic Russian land. Well, look at a map of the Russian Empire in the 19th century. Finland, the Baltic states, much of Poland were part of that Russian Empire, and therefore, in Putin's views, may be historic Russian lands. In Ukraine, we're sending money and weapons in 
Eastern Estonia would be sending American troops. Uh, now, I don't think this is a high probability that it goes beyond Ukraine. But I think three or four years, Eric, had somebody asked us, we would have said the probability of the kind of war that we've seen Russia inflict on Ukraine over the past 15 months would be a very small probability. And I think the last reason we should care is that 30 years ago, we told Ukraine we, we would care. Ukraine, at the end of the when the Soviet Union collapsed, had on its territory the world's third largest nuclear arsenal. And that included 1,900 strategic nuclear warheads that could target the United States. Ukraine gave those weapons up in large part because of the Budapest Memorandum on, on Security Assurances, in which Russia, the United States, and Britain uh, committed to respect Ukraine's sovereignty, its territorial integrity, its independence, and committed not to use force or threaten use force against Ukraine. Now, when we negotiated that, the Ukrainians said, what will you Americans do if the Russians violate this? And we said, we will take an interest, we will do things. We did say that we were not prepared to commit American troops. So it's a memorandum of assurances, not guarantees. And that word is important, I think, to most American ears, or at least American diplomatic ears. Uh, but I think it's important that we uh, live up to that commitment. So I, I do think that what's going on in Ukraine matters greatly, and we do have a big interest in how this war turns out. I just would add to your uh, description of the Budapest Memorandum that in addition to uh, Russia, the U.S. and the U.K., France subsequently associated itself with the assurances as well, the, the negative security assurances provided yeah. to Ukraine. As did China, both the Chinese and the French separately did. Yeah. So let's get to the, the current moment. Just the other day, we saw this drone attack, two drones uh, attacking the Kremlin uh, grounds, the Kremlin complex, uh, one, one of them exploding and creating some fire damage on the roof of the, of the Senate building in the Kremlin complex. Lots of speculation about what this is. You know, uh, was it a Ukrainian attack? The Russians, of course, were quick to say this was an assassination attempt against Putin, uh, which the United States was actually behind uh, since all the decisions were made in Washington, not in Kiev. Uh, many people have suggested this is actually a Russian false flag. Others have said it could be Ukrainian partisans inside Russia or Russian dissidents opposed to the Kremlin's war or even right-wing nationalist opponents of Putin who are angry that he's not prosecuting the war aggressively enough, uh, who want to embarrass him. I mean, a lot of different speculations, Steve. As a longtime uh, observer of this part of the world, uh, what do you make of it? Yeah, I don't totally exclude that the Ukrainians might be behind this, but I think it's much more likely that this is a false flag operation. Um, I mean, you have seen in the past, well, actually going back into uh, probably summer of 2022, the Russians improved, enhanced their air defenses around Moscow, including they have air defense systems in place on the top of the Ministry of Defense and several other buildings that are literally within a mile surrounding the Kremlin. So we're asked to believe that these drones came from somewhere outside, penetrated several rings of air defenses around Moscow including that inner ring of buildings, and then were only shot down over the Kremlin, uh, coincidentally in the view of many cameras. Okay, maybe the Ukrainians pulled that off, but it also seems to me that this could have been the Russians doing it. It's also interesting, well, two other points. One is the Russians said this was an, an attempt to assassinate Putin. However, everyone knows, and certainly the Ukrainians know, that Putin rarely spends a night in the Kremlin. He's usually at his complex southwest of Moscow. 
So it would have been a much more believable, perhaps, had there been an attack directed at that, if in fact the argument was this was an assassination attempt. But then, Eric, I remember um, I, I was in Moscow. I, I was assigned to the embassy in Moscow. I was actually in Helsinki uh, for a couple of days when this happened. But uh, in 1987, Matthias Roots, a, a German, flew a Cessna from Finland into the Soviet Union, uh, uh, landed on the bridge uh, right opposite of Red Square, and by all accounts was uh, not at all molested by any of uh, Russia's uh, or the Soviet's vaunted uh, air defenses. Within a day or two, you had the Minister of Defense fired, the head of Soviet air defenses fired. Uh, as far as I have, can tell, nobody has been fired for this flagrant violation of uh, air security over the Kremlin. So that, to my mind, points to the, this being a false flag operation that was designed for, as I, I think, the purpose is not really clear to me. <laughs> Uh, and I think it may have, in fact, backfired, as there's some reporting that seems to suggest that this increased the unease of people in Moscow when these things are uh, going in like this. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, uh, anybody who confidently tells you they are certain about what happened, um, you know, is probably wrong. I mean, I think we, you know, don't know enough yet, but I'm with you. I find the failure to fire anybody, hold anybody accountable for what would, would be a enormous lapse in air defense and a huge embarrassment right before the May 9th parade and, uh, and ceremony that it's just inexplicable to me, uh, unless there was some uh, Russian hand in this. Yeah. Of course, you know, you pointed out the Russian air defenses. I mean, in, in part, in response to this, the Russians launched a whole barrage of missiles and, and drones at Kiev and the Ukrainians intercepted 35 out of 35 headed towards Kiev the other night apparently. So, I mean, uh, at a minimum, this suggests perhaps Russian air defenses are not quite what they're cracked up to be. Uh, and the Ukrainians are maybe better at air defense than we give them or have heretofore given them uh, credit, which which raises a, a question about the much talked about yet to begin uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive that people have been talking about for some time. There's been a lot of discussion while we've had this ongoing sort of uh, World War One-like uh, static battlefield in Bakhmut uh, since last fall, really. A lot of discussion about Ukraine getting ready for a counteroffensive that would try and take back some of the territory that Russia has occupied. Somewhat along the lines of what we saw in October in the Kharkiv uh, area and then somewhat later in Kherson where the Russians were able to withdraw in a little bit better order than they did out of Kharkiv. Let's talk a little bit about what you think the prospects are for this. I, I noticed uh, over the weekend, Steve, that Defense Minister Reznikov gave an interview to the Washington Post in which he cautioned people against you know, uh, too high expectations for what the Ukrainians might uh, might accomplish. New York Times had an article suggesting that there are divisions inside the administration uh, over uh, whether the Ukrainians can actually accomplish a lot, and some suggestion that there's some people who are actually fearful that the Ukrainians will in enjoy what General Franks once described in a different context as catastrophic success, that they might be so successful that uh, you know it could provoke real uh, disorder and unrest and in Russia and make it more difficult to negotiate an end to this, to this conflict, if that's even possible. So what do you make of all this? And where do you think we are in the counteroffensive? How do you think it'll go? 
Yeah, uh, first, I mean, there will be Ukrainian counteroffensive. There's no doubt about that. Um, it probably uh, requires a little bit more drying out of the mud. <laughs> there, there have been some uh, really uh, interesting pictures of vehicles bogged down in the mud uh, that results from the thaw and the rains, but uh, that's only a matter of time. Where will the counteroffensive strike? I think, bear in mind, I mean, you alluded to uh, Kharkiv and Kherson. Uh, be prepared for some misdirection by the Ukrainians. If you recall last August, they talked about the counteroffensive that was coming, coming, coming in Kherson. And in September, they struck and they liberated uh, all of uh, Kharkiv. And then it was two months later that they turned their attention and were able to push the Russians back across uh, from the western bank of the Dnipro River. So uh, there's going to be some misdirection here. Um, we're also, it's going to be, I think, a different conflict for both sides in a way. I mean, the, the Ukrainians will be carrying out, or trying to carry out a fairly major counteroffensive using combined arms tactics. Um, and the Russians are going to be fighting from prepared defensive positions. So I, I'm not sure if what we've seen over the past 15 months gives us a lot of basis to judge exactly how this fight will play out. My own expectation, though, is that the Ukrainians will liberate more territory. They, they will have some success. Uh, whether they can achieve what was called uh, catastrophic success, I'm not sure. But again, I think a catastrophic success, I mean, you know, say they, for example, succeeded in, in, in driving down to the Sea of Azov and cutting the land bridge between Russia and Crimea, which would be a big step towards um, isolating occupied Crimea. You know, catastrophic success actually might cause uh, people, perhaps not Putin, but others in the Kremlin to say, you know, where is this war going? Uh, and, and so I, I, I'm not sure we should be all that uh, fearful of catastrophic success. Now, also having said that, I believe that while the Ukrainians can probably liberate a lot of territory, getting back to, well, liberating all of Ukraine, or even getting back to the February 23 line from last year, that's a pretty tough order. I mean, it would require probably the, the, the collapse of the Russian army in the way that you saw the Russian army collapse in 1918 at the end of World War I. Uh, again, I don't rule that out, but, but that kind of success, I think, is going to be uh, a tough order. But I do think we're going to see uh, some success by the Ukrainians. The question is how much. So the Ukrainians have been asking for lots of things, some of which we have given them reluctantly, like tanks. Other things we've been much happier to give them, including armored personnel carriers, you know, bridging equipment, demining equipment, lots of uh, of ammunition. Of obviously the HIMARS, the longer range artillery with the Gimler's rounds that we've given them, that have extended out their their fires quite a bit and and played no small role in the Kherson fight. Lots of things, though, that we haven't given them, you know, high-performance fighter aircraft like F-16s, attack of missiles that would extend the long-range fires uh, out to about 300 kilometers, which would uh, allow them to uh, go after the uh, kinds of logistical targets that they went after um, once we gave them the HIMARS that enabled them to liberate some of their territory. Now, in the same interview in which he counseled against overly high expectations, Minister Reznikov also sort of, uh, without being explicit about it, basically said if we got these things, it would actually push Russian logistics further and further back, making it more difficult for them 
to respond to our counteroffensive. So where do you come down on, on these systems? Do you think we should be supplying them to the Ukrainians? Why do you think that the you know, administration has been so hesitant? What do you make of that whole debate? Yeah. Well, let me just start with what we've ha- we have given them. I mean, the tanks, uh, armored personnel carriers, Bradley fighting vehicles. I, I think it would have been in the interest of the United States and the West to give the Ukrainians actually more of that stuff, increasing the prospects that this counteroffensive could be successful. But looking at other weapon systems, um, uh, attackums. I've, I've been arguing since the fall that we should give them attackums. What we saw last summer was that the Ukrainians, in a very strategic way, used the Gimlet's rockets, which have a range of about 50 miles, to strike Russian command posts and ammunition dumps in occupied Ukraine. That caused the Russians to have to move those ammunition dumps and command posts back 30 or 40 miles. That complicated their effort, and I think that's one of the reasons why in the latter part of the summer you saw the rate of Russian artillery fire begin to decline. It was simply harder to get the shells to the guys who were loading and firing the artillery pieces. Attackums would allow them to range any Russian target or any in occupied Ukraine, and it would cause them basically to have to pump some of those logistics back into Russia proper. I think that would be useful. I mean, that would further complicate the logistics for the Russians uh, and further degrade their performance on the front line. Now, I, I think there's one concern out there with the Ru- Ukrainians use these to strike targets in Russia. In fact, the Ukrainians have said for, I think, three or four months now that they would not use Western-provided weapons to strike targets in Russia proper. And by Russia proper, I mean Russia in its 1991 border, not the borders that Putin has been trying to adjust. Uh, so I think we could provide some of these systems, and they perhaps would not need a large number, but it could have been very important. Uh, on F-16s, um, I guess I had the feeling that I was talking to some other folks about this last week. The conversation that's now going on at F-16s kind of strikes me about the same way that the conversation uh, about tanks was going, say, four or five months ago. You know, my guess is in the net with, uh, certainly within a year, there will be F-16s given to the Ukrainians. Uh, now, the F-16, in some ways, they may not be the, the best aircraft for the Ukrainians. The problem is that huge under, under uh, scoop. Uh, they've got to have a pretty clean runway to operate from. But having said that, you've also got, with the F-35s coming out now, uh, lots of F-16s in the American Air Force, and in European Air Forces that are either now excess or soon to be excess. And again, my guess is that the Ukrainians could use these for air defense, but also ground attack. And if the Ukrainians continue their policy of not striking targets in Russia with Western-provided weapons, I'm not sure this crosses any red line. Uh, uh, you and I both know uh, Alexei Arbatov from our time in Moscow. Uh, he had an interview about three months ago where he was asked about Kremlin red lines. And the first thing he says, well, they're not explicit. And he's right. They're pretty vague and tacit. But he saw two red lines. One was if Western troops were to enter the war. And it's pretty clear, I believe, that you know Western countries are not going to cross that line, in part because the Ukrainians have never asked for Western troops. But the second line was if the Ukrainians were to use Western-provided weapons to conduct deep strikes into Russia, particularly against cities. And again, the Ukrainians thus far seem to have ruled that out. So it seems to me that there is much more room for the West to be providing the Ukrainians things like advanced fighters, ATACMs, 
and still be under whatever red line the Kremlin may or may not have. And part of the problem here is the, the Kremlin has not articulated those red lines in a clear way. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that the Ukrainians have had some of these drone attacks that have uh, been inside Russia, they appeared, first of all, they've been uh, domestically produced drones, not anything supplied to them by the United States. Exactly. It's a strange kind of war that the Russians are trying to impose on the Ukrainians, where the Russians uh, claim the right to be able to strike any target, military or civilian, anywhere in Ukraine, but somehow it's out of bounds, unfair, and breaking the rules should Ukraine strike anything in Russia. Yeah, no, it's ridiculous. I agree. But I mean, the point I was going to make is even the attacks that they, I mean, if you're in the administration and you're concerned about the escalatory risks, right, about giving them attackums or F-16s, despite the Ukrainian protestations, they won't use them the way we're afraid they might. Their own attacks actually have been very, very strategic. I mean, they've been against air bases, they've been against fuel storage facilities and things like that. I mean, it, it, it seems to me that the Ukrainians have done a pretty good you know, job of, of this. Yeah, the Ukrainians have been very discriminant. Uh, and they and, and part of it, I believe, is probably because they have limited resources for conducting those kinds of strikes against targets in Russia proper. You know, but as you said, they've used them to hit military targets. What's your take, Steve, on why the why the administration has been so reluctant? I mean, I, I'm with you. I've been arguing for attackums, you know, since last fall as well, and. And the F-16s, at a minimum, why aren't we training the pilots now, even if it's a ways away? I mean, I, I, think, it, I think it's a little bit less urgent, the F-16s, because actually the Russians have not, although they on paper, you know, have air superiority over Ukraine in terms of number of aircraft and, you know, uh, quality of aircraft. The reality is, you know, everything they're firing is pretty much standoff. They're, they're, they seem to be pretty intimidated by... Ukrainian air defenses. So I, I've thought that's as a less uh, high priority, but attackums, I, you know, I don't understand why the administration has been so reluctant. Do you have a, a view on why they have? No, no. First of all, I would agree. I think attackums is the more urgent need that would be more usefully incorporated into Ukraine's war plans now. Uh, and the F-16s, again, are, it's, it's a lesser priority, but again, it's the kind of thing that we ought to be thinking about now. Um, you know, at one point I heard somebody say that, uh, well, we don't want to give them the F-16s because it would take two years to train them to fly an F-16. No, <laughs> it would take the U.S. Air Force two years to train me, Steve Piper, probably three years to fly an F-16. But uh, we actually, I, I, I've, I've talked to somebody in the Air, I heard from somebody in the Air Force who is an F-16 pilot, and he said, if you take an experienced MiG pilot who's had four or five years in a MiG, you know, they basically know the basics. It's maybe six to eight weeks to train them how to operate an F-16. Well, it only took three months, right, to train the Ukrainians up on Patriot, and they seem to have knocked down a Kinzhal hypersonic cruise missile, which uh, was supposedly Putin's wonder weapon. That should tell you something about how quickly we can train Ukrainians on on advanced systems, right? And it's not just, I mean, it's sort of across the board. I mean, it's, it's really, I think, been one of the remarkable things of this fight, how quickly the Ukrainians have incorporated equipment into their battle plans and put them to use. And having to cope with things like what they have, five or six different types of artillery pieces coming in from the West. They seem to be making it work. 
so again, I, I think that, that uh, F-16s, uh, it, it'd be a challenge probably on the maintenance side, but I think the Ukrainians would find ways to overcome it. On that point, which you made, which is, I think, incredibly important and it doesn't get enough stress, the Ukrainians have this kind of really weird petting zoo of systems, right? Because we've got this, you know, jerry-built support system in which our NATO allies and other partners are providing, in some cases, Soviet-era equipment from, you know, from their, although most of that's now exhausted, from their uh, stocks. We've, we've got a variety of different Western systems, whether it's our HIMARS, our M777s, the French César. Problem is, particularly given the volumes of fire, you know, these artillery systems, the uh, tubes need to, after a certain number of firings, need to be switched out and reboard and serviced, et cetera. So the Ukrainians have had this enormous logistical challenge imposed on them. It's costly in terms of manpower and and money. And yet, as you say, Steve, they seem to have somehow made this thing work. Yeah, no, it's. I think it's. It, it'll be a fascinating story for somebody to write about afterwards and sort of just exactly how they were able to blend all these systems into their planning and and use them in very effective ways. But but your question, I mean, I, I look at the Biden administration, and I give them. I, I tend to be a tough grader, somewhere between a B and a B plus for how they handled the last fifteen months. In, in some ways, I think they've done the diplomacy superbly, and particularly in the run up to the war. Uh, and one of the reasons why. NATO and the G7 and the European Union moved so quickly after the Russians actually launched the full-scale invasion in February of last year was because there had been three months of preparing the ground diplomatically by led by the United States. Um, and in conversations I've had with administration officials, they say that there's really two goals here. One is to help the Ukrainians win and defeat the Russians, and the other one is to avoid a direct NATO-Russian military clash. And I agree, those are the right two objectives. But if I if I had to fault the administration or why I'm not giving them an A, it would be because I think when they blend those objectives, they tend to be a little bit too cautious in a way that, again, from what I can read and see now, maybe there's something in the super secret world that we've missed, but based on the way the Kremlin has acted and what the Kremlin has said, uh, I, I believe we are, are somewhat deterring ourselves in terms of the capabilities that we could be providing the Ukrainians and I point to things that uh, well, go back to last, I guess it was this February, when um, it was clear that from announcements out of Washington and out of Europe that we were going to begin giving Leopard tanks and a little bit later M1 tanks to the Ukrainians, the Kremlin response was kind of, uh, we don't like it, but I mean, you didn't have them uh, you know, threatening some, some, some uh, large new retaliation. So I, 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 from what I've seen in the outside world, in the unclassified world, uh, the Russians, you know, are not going to overreact to some of these things. And so we don't have to be as uh, cautious as we have been. For all those who want to argue that NATO enlargement was somehow responsible for what Putin has done in Ukraine, whether in 2014, 15, or the war he started in February 22, I mean, Finland and Sweden, you know, uh, Finland's now in NATO. uh, Sweden hopefully will soon be in NATO. And yet, you know, it hasn't created this kind of huge response from the Russians that people anticipated. So, I mean, I'm with you. I think that the administration has been cautious to a fault. 
and uh, way too willing to let itself be, I don't want to say intimidated, but they've become, I think, way too risk averse. I do agree with you, by the way, as well. I give a, a very high grade to Secretary Blinken, who I think has done a really good job of, um, you know, alliance uh, management and coalition maintenance. Uh, I don't think any of us would have predicted that NATO would hang together quite as well as it has over the last 15 months. I do give the Secretary of State a, a, a lot of, of credit there. But I, I just don't understand the just a high degree of risk aversion, particularly since, as you point out, you know, not just the Leopard and uh, M1A ones. I mean, it's been consistent. I mean, the same was true of the HIMARS and the range that that provided. There was a lot of concern about that would be, you know, breaching a red line. You know, uh, they're now getting some MiG-29s from from Central Europe. Supposedly that was a red line. So, you know, these lines are, if they're red at all, they're really kind of uh, very pale pink. And they're being breached without any kind of real response. So you would think that the kind of adaptive learning process for the administration would suggest perhaps they don't need to be uh, as risk averse as they have been, but they they seem to maintain that concern. Yeah. And and I think there is a risk to being that risk averse, which is the longer, of course, the longer this war drags out, um, you know, the, the greater the tragedy for Ukraine. Um, but I do think that uh, the longer this war goes, uh, as you said, I, I have been impressed and surprised by how, how well Europe and the West have hung together on this. My guess is few people would have predicted in February of 2022 that you would have you know, the amount of support going to Ukraine, the weapons going to Ukraine, the sanctions still being maintained on Russia. Uh, so that, that's gone well. But my guess is it's going to get tougher the longer the war goes on. And, and sort of sustaining that support, I think, is a real question, including in the United States. So I, I, I'd i rather see kind of a push to get the Ukrainians uh, more of the wherewithal they need to try to resolve this sooner rather than No, I agree with that. And, and I think there's actually polling data to support this. You know, there's a, a recent poll that I think both you and I are aware of by Shipley Tilhami at, at the University of Maryland that does show that after quite a long period of pretty robust support, there's beginning to be a little bit of decline in public support for aiding the Ukrainians. Some of that's being driven by, you know, Trump and DeSantis and Josh Hawley and other Republican leaders who are, you know, Tucker Carlson, who are critiquing, have been critiquing this policy all along. Uh, but some of it's coming from uh, independents and Democrats as well. And I do think there is a risk that we can fall into of playing a too long game that that I think Putin thinks plays to his strengths rather than ours, undermines public support in the U.S. and then potentially Europe as well. But also in, in Shibley's polls, he finds that the public actually has pretty high tolerance for giving the Ukrainians, everything they need to win this now. It's that the public doesn't want another endless war. Uh, they want to, you know, see this, you know, over and done with as soon as possible. So I think there's political support for it. Yeah. And I, I also, I mean, this is the curious thing. I mean, I don't pretend to understand all the uh, calculations in the White House about politics, but it would seem to me that, of course, the 2024 election will be decided first and foremost on domestic issues. But to the extent that foreign policy issues come into play, Ukraine is going to be one. And my guess is that uh, on that issue, the president's going to be in a much stronger position in 2024 if Ukraine 
has either won or is clearly winning the war as opposed to if Russia has prevailed or if there's a long stalemate. I agree with that. So let's talk about the prospect for negotiations. I mean, the Wall Street Journal had a story today that there is you know, growing consensus, they say, in uh, Western diplomatic chanceries and in uh, in Washington that there's going to be some kind of negotiation, uh, increasing thought that China might play some kind of role in, in mediating or brokering some kind of agreement, including people pointing to statements that Tony Blinken has made suggesting some openness on the part of the administration to the PRC playing this role. Henry Kissinger, I think it was yesterday or maybe the day before, who was about to turn 100 uh, later this month, who said, now that China is involved in this, he's confident there's going to be a negotiation sort of by the end of the year between the two. I'm not as confident as he is that there's going to be any negotiation. I don't see any disposition on the part of of Vladimir Putin to negotiate anything. And I think given the ferocity of the Russian assault on Ukrainian uh, nationhood, the war crimes, uh, the abduction of children, the kidnappings, I mean, everything we've seen, whatever room for maneuver President Zelensky might have had, you know, before this war started back in January of 2022, is much less now than it was then. And and you see that in polling of Ukrainians, that Ukrainians have not very much interest right now in negotiating with Russians. And I certainly can understand that. What do you make of, you know, this Chinese potential role as a mediator and prospects for negotiation? Are you as bearish as I am about them? Yeah. Um, for I mean, I, I believe at some point there will be a negotiation between Kiev and Moscow. Uh, but I don't see any prospect of that anytime soon. Uh, the positions right now, they're just—I mean, there's no overlap. I mean, the uh, and, and and one of the bizarre things here is that Russian demands of Kiev have escalated, even when they were losing on the battlefield. I mean, there's this real disconnect in Moscow. In August and September last year, you know, Russian forces were being driven back in Kharkiv. They were coming back under under greater pressure in Kherson. They were making no progress in Donbass. And then at the end of September, Putin sort of escalates his demands by saying Ukraine now has to recognize that we have uh, annexed Zaporizhia, Luhansk, Kherson, and Donetsk. So I, th- I think there's there's just at this point, there's there's no reason to think a negotiation would work. The Chinese, it's interesting um, but I think the Chinese have to do more than simply put down a list of 12 principles. Uh, and a lot of those principles are very good. Support for territorial integrity, that sort of thing. Uh, but nowhere in those principles did you see withdrawal of forces from the other guy's territory. And at least uh, I, I'm prepared to have the Chinese persuade me otherwise. But right now, it seems to me that that piece of paper and a couple of phone calls were designed to allow China to say, we're a player in world affairs. We have a plan on the table. We keep. But quite frankly, the Chinese are really they're the ones who have significant leverage with Russians. Uh, there's no sign that they've applied that leverage. Now, um, I, I so I, at this point, I don't think the West and I, to their credit, I don't think the uh, Biden administration has done this. We, the West should not be trying to push Zelensky into a premature negotiation. The negotiation 
when it happens, I think requires two things. First of all, an adjustment in the Kremlin's negotiating approach, where it looks like, in fact, they are beginning to accept some of the battlefield realities. And that means shedding some of their more bizarre demands. And then on the Ukrainian side, this gets, Eric, into the point that you raised, is um, I think the, uh, the Ukrainian government in the first weeks of the war, I think, was looking for a way to end it. They, they offered neutrality. They even made some hints that that struck me as offering uh, readiness to compromise on, on territorial issues. That changed over the course of March of last year, particularly when places like Bucha and Irpin were liberated and the Ukrainians saw the atrocities, you know, the, the mass graves, the torture chambers, the reports of rapes, the forced deportation of Ukrainian children. And it seems to me that attitudes both in the government, but also in the broader public hardened in a way that some of the ideas that I believe Zelensky was prepared to consider in the first couple of weeks of March of last year, he's not prepared to consider now. And if he was prepared to consider them, uh, he could never sell it to the Ukrainian public. Uh, so I, th I think we have to recognize that even once Moscow begins, if, if I, th I think it'll still be at some point when Moscow begins to get a bit more serious about a negotiation, it's gotta be a call by the Ukrainian leadership because they probably cannot go into a negotiation and get everything they want. There'll have to be some compromises, but those compromises could be extremely controversial within Ukraine. So I, I think the, the, the West on the one end, we should not be pushing the Ukrainians into negotiation. At the end of the day, also, if the Ukrainians accept some settlement that may fall short of you know the demands they have now, we also should not interfere with that. This should be a call for Kyiv. You know, my own sense of this, and I have absolutely no direct evidence to support what I'm about to say, but I'll say it anyway. You know, I was puzzling a little bit about uh, Secretary Blinken's comments about the PRC. I mean, because among other things, uh, you know, you mentioned the list of principles that uh, yes. the Chinese announced uh, around the time of the Xi Putin meeting. One of the things that was notably missing was any kind of strictures against, uh, you know, aggression you know, armed aggression against your neighbors. And so, you know, it's not completely clear to me how, you know, how much of a uh, a really neutral sort of uh, interlocutor and, and potential mediator the Chinese can be. I mean, your colleague at Stanford, former Ambassador Mike McFall, has pointed out that I think it's Ambassador Lee who has been appointed as the the Chinese envoy is actually a pretty pro-Russian guy. He was he was uh, Mike's counterpart, I think, in Moscow as the PRC ambassador there when Mike was ambassador in the Obama administration. And so, to me, I was trying to puzzle out why would the administration be, you know, so open, quote unquote, to to doing this. And it occurred to me that there might be actually a good reason for them to do that, which is. We know that they have been urging the Chinese not to provide any lethal assistance as the Russians run down their own stocks of uh, ammunition, whether it's artillery ammunition or precision guided munitions, et cetera, which we know they're now getting very low on. And, you know, we see them using S-400 air defense missiles and bastion coastal defense missiles in an offensive mode, which is obviously not desirable or, you know, not the way they're designed to be used. It occurred to me that the administration may want to try and use this Chinese 
offer of mediation as a way to keep them kind of from not playing in the competition between Ukraine and, and Russia for military assistance by basically, well, if you want to be a mediator, we're open to that, but you can't be really, you know, backing one side if you're going to play that role. And that, I think, would make some sense. Yeah, no, that, that could be possible. But, but again, I think, uh, but part of it is sort of pushing them the burden on the Chinese that you have to show that they're serious. And again, to my mind, uh, a serious effort by the Chinese means that they use some of this leverage that they Vladimir Putin. Yeah, I very much agree. I wanted to just talk briefly about President Zelensky's speech. I know you haven't had a chance to you know, read it in full, but today is VE Day in the United States and Europe. Tomorrow is Victory Day in Moscow because at the time that the Allies took the Nazi surrender um, in 1945, it was already May 9th in Moscow because of the time difference. President Zelensky today, interestingly, in his speech, it seemed to me was engaging in a bit of, of an attempt to deal with President Putin's cultural appropriation of Ukrainian history in his own, you know, 7,000 word essay back in the summer of 2021, in which he essentially denied that Ukraine is a nation or even a separate people from the Russians. Uh, President Zelensky was uh, number one saying that he's asking the Ukrainian Rada to change the law to make the VE Day May 8th so that Ukraine will be aligned with us and the West in celebration of the end of the war, but also was using it to discuss the fact that the war uh, between the Nazis and uh, the Soviet Union was largely fought out in Ukraine. And it was Ukrainians who did the bulk of the suffering and the bulk of the fighting, for that matter, uh, in World War II. And so it, from that point of view, it was a, a very you know interesting speech, I thought, um, again, a kind of one of his, I think, kind of tour de forces, which we're getting used to now. But I, I just wonder if you have some thoughts about that, having served as ambassador there and knowing this history as well as you do. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, it, Putin has tried to appropriate the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany. And, you know, I mean, the Soviets deserve a lot of credit. Uh, you know, they, they fought probably three times as many divisions on the Russian front as the Western Allies did in, 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 in France and Italy. Uh, but it was the Soviets, it was not Russia. And, and Putin now seems to pretend that this history is just uh, to the credit of Russia, when in fact, if you look at other parts of the Soviet Union, Ukraine, uh, Belarus, those countries were fully are fully occupied by the German army in World War II, uh, a relatively small portion of what was then the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic was occupied by the Nazis. And on a proportionate basis, uh, Ukraine and even and more so Belarus suffered far more greatly than Russia did. So this effort by Putin to pretend this is just a Russian victory, you know, it's, it's uh, his effort to um, abuse history and use it to a purpose, I think, for his domestic audience primarily. Our guest has been Steve Pfeiffer. Steve, thank you so much for uh, joining us. It's been great to have you. Unfortunately, we could go on, I think, for hours talking about this, but you have other things to do. If you enjoyed, 
today's podcast, drop us a line at shieldofrepublic at gmail.com or uh, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Thanks very much, Eric.